Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sachs. And I'm Lori Sachs. And today we're joined by Vaish Sarati. Vaish is a chemist, engineer, and educator who teaches nonlinear education. We discovered her from her TED Talk on assuming intelligence. And today that's what we're going to talk about is assuming intelligence, competence, and ability. And what a difference that would make in the education of our children. So welcome, Vaish. Good morning, Vaish. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Stephen and Laurie. I'm so, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me here on your podcast. Well, I'm so happy that you reached out to us. This is something that has been a part of our lives and our fight for Liam's education. And so when I started to watch your TED Talk and your information about assuming intelligence, I know there are those rare occasions where things are changing and, and people are assuming that children with Down syndrome have abilities, but for the most part, it has been a huge part of Liam's journey that everybody just assumes he won't and can't. Yeah, plenty of assumptions, just not intelligence included in there. So why don't we start with, tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's always hard to get started on this particular topic. I never know where to start, but I am trained as a chemist. I have a PhD in environmental chemistry and, and then I um, worked for Intel for a little bit as an environmental engineer. This was around the time that Sid was born and was diagnosed. Um, so he's 14 right now and obviously was diagnosed with Down syndrome at birth. But I was pretty clueless about everything. And, you know, I was in those days, I was of the mentality that the more I hide myself from the real world, the more these, you know, everything will be okay. So very much like like an ostrich, if at all that thing is true about ostriches. But yeah, so when he was three, I just happened to meet another another child with Down syndrome who was his age. And I realized that what symptoms Sid is expressing, this isn't Down syndrome. There's something else going on here because Sid was non-speaking. Of course, he's still non-speaking, but he was non-speaking at the time was also not making eye contact and many things. And then we realized when we asked, we realized that he also has a diagnosis of autism. This is a little bit classic of kids with Down syndrome, but anything else that you have is kind of pushed under the rug. One of my friends, Dr. Erica Pearson calls it diagnostic overshadowing, where you have Down syndrome. Everything else, if you have stomach pain, that's Down syndrome. If you can't move your hands, that's Down syndrome. If you're gaining weight, losing weight, that's Down syndrome. So there's often very little further investigation that's done, but that's another situation. So at the time I left Intel and I started my journey as a teacher and I started teaching chemistry and math and also working with Sid. And because he was and is non-speaking, I think I was given the unique opportunity to explore other means of communication for him. And providentially we, uh, we found the letter board through a technique called RPM where he started pointing to the letter board to spell and it was actually, and I described this in my TED talk, but the first time he made choices, this wasn't on the letter board yet, but I had just pulled him out of public school at the time because it just wasn't working out. And his online public school had asked that we give a diagnostic exam to him. 
he was in second, getting into second grade and they wanted to give an age appropriate exam. And I said, you don't realize how delayed my son is. He, he won't even understand what this means. And you know, I just really bless them every day because they said, just, just try it anyway. So I remember offering him a question, which was just a pattern recognition question. It's like so many dots and squares, and then they keep changing. And what do you think the fourth shape should be like? And I was expecting nothing. I was just expecting him to stare into space. And I remember putting four choices in front of him. And this was a time Sid couldn't point. He still struggles with isolating his finger. So he just went and batted at the right response like this. And I, I remember just being completely mind blown. I was like, this has to be fluke. This cannot be real. And thankfully something, I don't know what it was, but I didn't push this because if I had tried testing him three more times, I would not have gotten the results. So I just assumed something happened here. Let's test it out later. Well, that was just the journey. And then I realized that we'd been told over and over again, because Sid is non-speaking, he has, he's autistic, he has Down syndrome, he has visual issues. So when you look at him, intellectual delay is the first thing that comes to everybody's mind. So because he exhibits all the physical traits that we think are associated with intellectual delay, except we have no idea what is, but we're just conditioned as society to believe that this is how a face of a child that's intellectually delayed looks like. So we were told that, I remember this number too, when he was four, I think, they actually administered an IQ test to him, which we now have evidence does not work for children that have motor apraxia and were not speaking. This isn't a thing you should ever do to a child who even struggles with motor skills a little bit, but they did it. And they said that he was in the 0.1 percentile, I guess, of intelligence or whatever their thing or cognition. And I took it very seriously. I remember I took it very hard and I was like, how can I you know, help my son if he's in the 0.1 percentile? Should I even be doing anything? Should I even try? And it just so happened. I think things just worked out. And now, of course, um, things are very different. Now, Sid is a, um, over, over years, it took him his, the letter board that he spells on looks like this. And it took him, um, obviously very low tech, took him seven years to build his motor skills. It wasn't that he wasn't able to communicate, but every form of communication is a motor activity. Whether that speech is severely fine motor, uh, eye contact is fine motor, gestures are motor, and even pointing is less motor, but it's still, this is the movement he does. So now he's quite fluent with the letter board and he is, as of November last year, a published poet. He has a small chap book and it's called Give a Book. So I don't know if I've said anything about myself, actually, uh, I know you asked about me. So. Being a chemist, I, I started teaching chemistry and math. I was teaching neurotypical kids initially, but as Sid started spelling on the letter board, I somehow got into also teaching um, autistic kids who are non-speaking. And the lessons learned during this have been so profound because I remember working with kids that were saying something because their speech was caught on a loop. Remember this particular, uh, I think he was 60, 16 year old, I was working with non-speaking autistic. And he was saying something like, give me this toy. I want to go to the bathroom over and over again because his speech was caught in a loop. And I remember I had asked him, what is the formula for barium sulfate? And on the letter board, while saying this, he was spelling B-A-S-O-4. So it's like, okay, we're on to something here. There's Maybe we're missing something here rather. I think that if I know one thing, I just know that intelligence is just there. I think the, the delay or the intellectual disability we're seeing is in, in our eyes, is this inability of human beings to see that people that don't look like them can be intellectually the same.
in the TED Talk, you spoke about your intelligence and how you were raised to have a great respect or belief in your intelligence. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that because part of being raised to respect your own intelligence gave you that respect and openness to see your son's ability in the long run. Yes. And I was definitely a very science and math oriented kid, but I was growing up when I was younger. I don't, I remember always choosing books and over friends and so on. I was just that I'm not like that now, but I was like that when I was younger and I was an only child. And I think it might've been rare in those days, but my parents, I mean, they just encouraged me to think that I was capable of anything. And I myself had this very firm belief that anything I wanted to do I could do, many of which came crumbling down later, but I, I realized that I'm not as smart as I think I am. I, I, I mean, there, there's definitely some, you know, arrogance there, but I think that worked out well for Sid. It may not have been the best idea for myself, but when Sid was born, I, I just couldn't believe that. I mean, if I had a kid, that kid had to be, had to be smart. That was my immediate assumption. I could not process the fact that I think whether you call it arrogance or whatever, but I just could not process the fact that that could not be the case. And I remember reading, and I think while this is not completely thought to be true now, I remember reading in many places that we only use 10% of our intelligence. I was thinking, what are we missing? And I, I remember having this doubt, and I think this doubt is a good thing to have. As parents of kids with disabilities, we, we doubt intelligence all the time. We doubt performance in school, when a child does an activity successfully, they're trained to ask them three times to repeat that activity, whereas a neurotypical kid doesn't have to do any of that. So if you show me ABC, show it to me three times, then I'll believe you, right? But if we move to doubting intellectual delay, I think that would be a much better place to be. So right now, I teach a technique called nonlinear education, which is something that I worked with Sid which very simply is that when we try, especially with kids that are neurodiverse, when we try to teach concepts one by one, for example, as teaching said addition and multiplication, this was without any requirement for the response. I would just teach. I wouldn't expect him to get back to me because he wasn't communicating with me. I didn't know how to at that time. And then whenever his eyes would glaze over, I would teach the next thing. I would never go back. I would never assume that he didn't understand. I would always assume that he was bored and then would move on. And there was a time when no matter, like I would try to teach division, I could just tell that he was done. So I just moved on to teach whatever I wanted to. I would teach exponents, I would teach logs, I would go to binary to decimal. And kids with disability, we often wait for a certain milestone to be achieved and to be achieved three times before we teach the next thing, which is a huge disservice, right? So I feel like if milestones are not achieved, we need to start working around them to other milestones not wait for this arbitrary goal to be achieved before we can teach more. And I think especially kids with Down syndrome, this is how the education model is not serving them. So that is something I teach parents. This is what I do. I, I'm a chemistry and math tutor or teacher to many non-speaking kids. And also I, I teach this process of nonlinear education to parents. And I'm a functional nutrition consultant because I did have to do a lot of uh, we did, Sid and I had to work on diet a lot. I say Sid and I, initially it was just me, but now he's a pretty active participant in what works for his diet and not. There's so many different things that you hit on. I'll go backwards so I don't lose it. Uh, just talking about the way our children are measured in their intelligence, they're definitely held to a different bar and expectation of a neurotypical child, regardless of what the neurotypical child's challenges are. You know, we talk a lot about how our daughter 
had trouble with multiplication and how much time was taken and how much patience was given. And the concept was she's going to get it. We'll just keep reiterating and she's going to get it. So there was really no pressure. And in that, we could take the pressure off her. I remember working with her saying, you know what, you're going to get this. It's going to click. And if not, you have a calculator because she would get so frustrated and beat herself up. That is by no means how Liam's education was approached, even to the fact that without any supports from the school, they would come back and say, he just can't do it. We gave him the test. And even the way the goals are written in the IEP, the actual goals are that he will do this with this many prompts on this many times with this amount of accuracy. And I think about the kind of pressure that that would have put on my daughter to put that same pressure, because honestly, not every question is written the same. So it just makes sense that if Liam does something and does it correctly, but then he's, he knows that you don't believe him. He, he's going to sense that like, all right, now prove it. And it's the, and it's the conversation that we've had so many times about proving ourselves instead of just showing or being seen for who we are. And I just, it just really clicks with me, the imbalance that is there in the approach for educating and supporting our children. Well, how is assuming intelligence and then this nonlinear instruction or nonlinear education, how is it accepted? You know, because we have professionals in our lives that don't think this way. And and I'm curious about what their thoughts are when presented with this. Yes, two different responses. Nowadays, presuming competence has become a little bit of a buzzword. So everybody wants to be seen as presuming competence. However, um, school districts are another story. So it depends on the school district, of course. I can't make sweeping statements, at least the place where we live in. It's, it's very hard to get there. Definitely kids are labeled by whether they have Down syndrome, whether they have autism, and whether they're speaking. So if you're non-speaking and you have Down syndrome, you're generally like there are four boxes in a decreasing level of how much you're taught and you go in the bottom box. So even the top box is not taught very much. So even if you are speaking and you have Down syndrome and the so-called high functional, which usually means high motor and speech functional, right? So which means you have good movement, good speech, even those kids aren't taught very much. However, um, I have professionals working with my son in whether it's OT or speech. I think this has been a point. This is almost why I made the TEDx talk so I could just there's a little bit more of a validation associated. I could say the same thing directly, but if I show a TEDx talk, people tend to believe it more. So I've been very open about that. This relationship can only happen if you really presume intelligence because uh, receptive skills and expressive skills are different. You are going to get what you uh, assume. So because simply because the child's going to get frustrated that you don't believe and there's no motivation to show you their best at all. So you're just going to get what you assume. So with professionals, it's been a little easier. I simply don't work. We simply don't work with professionals who don't presume competence. That's, but with school districts, no, which is why we have to keep coming back to homeschooling because it is very hard for them. And non, non-linear education, you can forget about it because they are, um, I, I'm still working on getting the word out so more and more people will embrace the idea that you don't have to attain a milestone. A child doesn't, the burden of proof is not on the child. The burden of proof is on the teacher. It can never be on the child. It has to be on the adult. It's atrocious that a child with poor motor skills, for example, I remember my son's first first grade teacher telling me, today I asked Sid if he could point to A uh, through Z or something like that. And I think he pointed to every letter, but I asked him to repeat it and he didn't. And I remember being outraged. This is a child who can barely lift his hand. 
you can barely converge his eyes well enough to see where A through Z are. And you're telling me he pointed to 26 letters and you asked him to repeat it. Uh, who, who does that? <laughs> and, uh, and that's when we pulled out to homeschool and our lives definitely changed for the better. But that is a huge um, nonlinear education is is not something professionals are trained because every teacher, no matter how progressive the school district is trained that once you reach this level, then you can be taught this. And to prove that you've done this level, you have to do five worksheets with 20 questions each so that you can show us that you got this. So in order to even be ready to receive an education that is not linear, where people are not waiting for you, you have to give up grades, you have to give up passing and failing, you have to give up everything and you have to just say, which we have said right now in ninth grade, this is the first time Sid's going back to public school. It's still online. Till now he was being homeschooled. So we've just said, we don't care if he passes or fails. We don't care what he does. Just give him access to the class. We're not going to be able to finish all the worksheets. It takes him easily maybe 10 to 20 times the time it takes for somebody else to do a single problem. So we don't care if you say that we failed. Just make sure we get access to the material as we go. So we have no expectations of any kind of a check mark for anything. And that's how that's working so far. Hopefully it'll change. Do you have IEPs when you go into school? In the online public school, it's not such a big deal because anyway, they're not providing any support. I am the learning coach, so it's not such, they will have an IEP so that they can accommodate him to give fewer problems and so on. But the IEP process that I've faced in school was pretty horrific. So I, which is one of the reasons I didn't go back. I simply couldn't do anything that I wanted to do while working with an IEP at the time. So, Really, they're already assuming that our children can't do it. There's such a push always. It sounds like you took him off curriculum, and there's such a push for that. We fought to stay on curriculum just because we know that if he goes into the school off curriculum, what you just described as a bonus is mm -hmm. what they're going to do, but they will hold our son to a different, it's just that low expectation, no expectation. It would, it would almost be like there, it would be a relief of them to be responsible. Um, I'd seen them fail him so many times that I was just like, I can't imagine how much they're going to fail him if we then, if we say it's okay not to support him. And so I, I wonder though, that if we're going into an IEP where they don't have an expectation of our child anyway, are, are those things that we can begin to ask for? Because we can request um, smaller lessons, like shorter vocabulary lists um, for them to do five problems on a 20 problem worksheet instead of 20. Is that something that we can request that would then be a support? Does that make sense? It, it does partially. And um, I was looking into this whole process because this year my hope was for Sid to go to school, but the but just starting the conversation was so stressful because I was in my own bubble and I only talked to people who, who think like me. And I was like, oh, this is how people think. And I was like, I, I can't deal with it yet. Let's just continue. So, um, but to maybe partially answer what you're saying, it was very enlightening for me to, to learn the difference a few years ago between an accommodation and a modification. So usually with, with kids with Down syndrome, they think the curriculum has to be modified, which means to make it simpler because they think they can't understand it. But when I said that I don't need a modification, I need an accommodation. So they understand that your kid is going to take longer, not because they don't understand, but because simply it takes a lot more to coordinate their body and to, to work through this. And usually they're pretty open to giving modifications. 
I think they still push you because I think it's in the interest of the school to keep children in segregated classrooms and to, because for them, I think it's, uh, it's in their interest to minimize the amount of effort the teacher has to put in. Like you said, the focus is not on the child. The focus is on how can you make it easier for the system. And the problem with school is we can change individual mindsets, but the school is a system. So I don't even know where you would begin to change. I think it can be done, but I'm not the best person to talk about this because I see it and I'm like, I don't even want to put my son there. Let, let me back off for a little bit. I'll come back next year. So I've, I've been doing this for a bit. So my goal is next year again. Well, when Lori was asking you that, in my mind, I thought the, the school system isn't set up to be nonlinear. Mm-hmm. Even just to start with grades, the idea of grade levels. I mean, it's everything's a level and they talk about uh, steps and moving up and it's inside the classroom and also in the general structure of elementary school is first through fifth and then there's a middle school and a high school. And so it's all these steps. You have to do this to get to there. And the concept of a nonlinear education isn't something that I think they would even even if they understood it, I think the structure of the educational system is not there to support it. It's not, you're right. I want to make sure that we put a link to your nonlinear, because this is a program that you created, the nonlinear education. It is a program. I will I will be sure to send you a link. Because I, I feel like everything that you're speaking about, it's different things that we've experienced. You know, the those IEPs, they're very stressful. They are, they're, they're unlawfully stressful. They're abusively stressful. Mm-hmm. And you, here you are, a very intelligent human being who can support your son in, in a manner that... Yeah, I'm not, not at that level. Could. I can't. He does the math. I do the English. I don't, you know, we, we split up and we, we divide to conquer. And that still is something that you're, ex, you're you experience in, in the efforts of supporting your son. So I'd, I'd love to see more how you break it down because there was a shift in me when I said, first of all, I'm always learning. I'm still learning. So why is this label and outline by people who don't know my son are most likely, most likely the people who created that structure and ladder had, had nothing to do with the disability community. It was just kind of a thought, hopefully made with the best interest, but it's not the reality of the process and how we learn. And it, and it goes more towards enabling that non-assumption of ability, you know, um, that, that you you talk about in your Ted talk, you know, you ask, what do you see? Do you see somebody who should go to college? You don't use those words, but this basically, do you see somebody who could be next to your child, you know, in higher education, or do you see someone who needs to learn how to do functioning skills? If you're lucky, maybe, yeah, do, but, is this person even worth putting and, any education? And because that's really what we're told so early on kindergarten. And I want to say first, everybody needs functional skills. Every human could use a course in functional skills. So even just putting that, that label on functional skills, now you're, you're creating another box. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the stuff that, that you talk about are things that innately as parents going through this system, just, it settles right. It may be things that we're doing like in a different, in a different way, maybe in our brain, we've, we've let go of the whole grading process. But I think this is like you were talking about seeing and showing. This is the flip side of instead of it being, 
my son has failed because he can't go through this process and get the grades in the way that you've structured it. It's such a freedom. It sounds like such a freedom of we're actually going to educate the individual and not just, I don't think this is something that is for just someone who has a diagnosis of Down syndrome or, or a, a disability. I think this is educating a whole child. I mean, how many neurotypical children do we know that you say we're going to have a test on Wednesday and there's, they get physically sick, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. To your earlier point about, you know, functioning, functional skills, I remember when Sid was born, of course, this was just like a few days, he was diagnosed after he was born. And the lady, I guess she was a, must have been a geneticist, I can't remember right now, but she was telling us that, um, you know, he has trisomy 21 and all that. And I remember crying and it's same story, right? So, but I don't even know why I cried, but, but she, I remember her telling us that if you're lucky, he'll be a cashier or a grocery clerk in a, in a store. And the irony is that my son's never going to be a cashier. He simply, he doesn't have the motor skills to separate two notes of cash. He, he simply like, he doesn't have the vision, like even with glasses, his, his, his fine motor is so he struggles with it so much that he might, he's already a published poet, but he's never going to be that person. So this whole idea of functional skills, we're still trying, we're still, he's still learning how to wash his hands. But traditionally, our society thinks that unless you know how to wash your hands, you can't learn math, which is just complete nonsense because they, they have nothing to do with each other. And as we talk to schools, the, the real understanding that they need to know is that the motor strip of the brain and the the area where cognition happens, they're, they're unrelated. There's nothing. We have this, really have this intrinsic belief that non-speaking and non-thinking are the same thing. It's, it's kind of become a huge hashtag these days with non-speaking autistics that not speaking is not the same as not thinking, which should be obvious to everybody because I'm not an expert in neurobiology. But but having said that, this we know that the speech areas, the motor areas, and the cognitive areas are distinct. They have nothing to do with each other. Anybody, any neurologist can tell you that. But even neurologists make that assumption. I remember going to a neurologist because I would ask Sid to lift his hands and he couldn't. And I was wondering what's going on. Is this a neurological problem? And of course, the first thing that they said is maybe he doesn't know what it means to lift your hands. It's like, okay, here we go again. And they know this, they know the anatomy of the brain and, and, and it's still there. And to your second point about the about how the educational process is, if I sat and when I gave my TEDx talk, that was almost three years ago. And at the time, Sid was very much into math. He has since completely given up any interest in math. And his learning is very, um, it's very splintered in the sense that he has immense interest in a topic and he has almost zero interest in another. So, and those keep changing too, but right now it's language and poetry everywhere. But sometimes because he has to go through math to finish school, he'll do it, but it's really not interested. And because he can be, he has the freedom to be like this to an extent, because there's nobody, nobody at school is expecting anything from him. I'm not expecting him to do everything. I'm completely okay if he spends five hours in poetry and not doing any math. He's been able to present at different places about his poetry. He's been able to do things. I mean, it's generally uh, that much older poets would be doing. And I look at my daughter who's neurotypical and she has to trot through all the things she doesn't like and the things she likes. She doesn't have the freedom to do that. She, she has to do everything. And more and more, it's seeming to me that this neurotypical education that I'd wanted for my son is not so great after all. So, yeah. No, I think you're 
you're spot on when you talk about the nonlinear education. We took a trip to Massachusetts and going to Walden and understanding how education was perceived, you know, in the time of Walden and Thoreau and all these great poets and intellectual minds and compassionate people. And, you know, that's it, that you're, that you have that freedom to learn, that you're living the education. You're you're not just like regurgitating and recycling things so that someone can check it off because I feel like it is, I feel like it's a checklist and there's no freedom to learn. And what if Sid's done with math because he's done it, he learned it, he knows it, and it's just not interesting. And when I was learning math, I, I gear more towards literature a friend of mine who was a doctorate in math, he he showed me the similarities between math and literature and how how math can be broken down the same way literature and poetry and those things are. And it, and it opened my mind to that because um, math was very intimidating. So You thought you were away from math, but you were I thought I didn't understand it thought, at all, but mm-hmm. I was closer than I thought. And what I love about what you talk about is that that freedom of labels. You know, if nobody saw your son and you just said, this is how we're going to approach his education, they might think, ooh, what a new, edgy form of, I, I think it's that label. And I think you talk about it in the TED Talk. It's the label of the diagnosis that just all of a sudden we're in this box and we don't, we don't look at Sid and say, Sid's probably done with math. I mean, who isn't done with math? And he has nothing to prove. Just like we're all on this journey to, we don't have something to prove to somebody. We're, we're on our, our journey in life. That's, that's the path that we get to carve out. I think it's more about actually learning and being free from those constraints of proving or somebody's judgment or inter- interpretation of what somebody else's intelligence should or can be. Well, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how that person was trying to foresee where Sid was going to be. What's his maximum going to be? It's going to be a clerk at a store, which, first of all, saying that that's the most he can be, what is her concept of what a clerk clerk in a a store store is? I mean, there's plenty of people that are clerks in a store and... That's the job they have. It's exactly. nothing negative about it. And they had to work hard to get that job yes. and they work hard to keep that job and they do that job well. But just the idea of trying to forecast what any child is going to be because of what they see goes back to what the base of a lot of what you're saying is that we need to change not what we see, but how we're interpreting what we what we see. Why make assumptions, right? This is what we're, we're talking about. And Sid shows who he is later than when he's an infant, like we all do. Yes. No one should have looked at me as an infant and said, "Mm, this is what I can gather by what I'm seeing. Exactly. Yeah. And what do you gather when you see a baby? They're kind of like, I mean, they really are just like, what can you gather? What can you assume? Is that like having almond shaped eyes? We talk about that a lot, that that's going to make that assumption. And unfortunately, as a community, we carry that assumption for us for, for a long time until we, either are shown something different like you were or are we just change our mind but a lot of people carry that assumption from someone who didn't know what they were talking about through the entirety of their their child's life and then they put that on their child there is a value to having all the doors shut on you from from some perspective i remember my husband and i 
having this conversation many, many, many years ago is that everybody, this is this answer. He's too low functioning to come here. He's too low functioning for this. Even therapies that other autistic kids used to go to and kids with Down syndrome used to go to, Sid was too low functioning for any of those. And I think that I remember, despite what I felt at that time, there is so much value because when you when you have nothing, then I think the freedom hits and then you can, you can I, I'm really grateful for all the, because otherwise I would have just gone this, if he, if he even spoke a little bit, there would have been no way that we, we would have found what we found now because I would have thought what he said was the maximum that he could say because we, we think speech is this holy grail of communication. And for most kids, it's the most imperfect thing for them. It's so many you know muscles moving in unison to make the speech. It's just not something most kids with disabilities can do very easily. And yet everything is judged by that one thing. So I know that I would have been in that box too. So I, um, I don't know if Sid is, but I'm grateful that we had many, many, many uh, areas shut off. I know he still wants to speak one day. He has mentioned, he's felt that many times that he would like to be able to speak. I feel like when you say freedom, that's, that's really the umbrella that everything that you talk about could fall under. It does feel like a freedom. And then I question, why? Why was I buying into it for so long? Why was I, I mean, you can still stay in the system, but to have the tool of this thought and, and this approach is, it, it just feels like a freedom. And you talk about expressive language and communication. And I know in our life, just we just had a thing this morning with Liam about, you know, asking him a question and he's fun, he's you know, going through something in his brain, the way he goes through it. And I'll admit, I was just like, I, I got so overwhelmed. I was just like, okay, let's just make our bed. Like, And now maybe I can approach that moment uh, in a different way, because I know that I've had some things carved into me of... This is how things should be. This is how things should be. And also a lot of the judgment on Liam, a lot of the placement on Liam comes from that conversation all the time about his expressive language. And I know you have three different parts of your, your language, your, your receptive, your cognitive, your expressive. And I've, you know, that's been my thing. His, his cognitive and receptive has always been so much higher than his expressive. And I've had that conversation in so many IEPs trying to get support, but it's, it's definitely something that, that is used to, like you said, put him, put them in a box, try to put them in a different classroom. I've never known that high functioning is basically motor and speech. And we should all know that because then you can go into your IEP and know that their definition of how your child functions and their level of functioning, what it's based on. And then I think that we can go into our IEP with other information as far as how your child communicates. They should not be able to just put your child in a box because this is what they see. So I think that going in and as we are, you know, working towards supporting our child in education, we then do the work that we, I know that every parent does at home because every parent has, you know, well, my, my child does this and this is how they, and this is how they, and really in the IEP, I love that you said the burden is not on my child to prove to you what they can do. The burden is on the teacher to teach my child. And if it's not working, my child is not the one who should suffer some kind of consequence that will have a detriment on their future that will um, have an impact 
on their life. It should instead be we're a team. This is the reality. This is the responsibility. If what you're doing this way isn't working, let's try this way. Absolutely. You found Sid's interest in math, and then you said his, he's now focused on poetry. How did you find that? How did he show you that? And, and how do you go about getting his information out? One of the cues that I really watch for and I recommend people watch for is boredom, which is often misinterpreted as lack of understanding. Because when you often with our kids with disabilities, a glazed look is not that uncommon. And we always interpret it as, oh, he doesn't get it. We have to make it simpler, which is very seldom the case because they're just going to get more glazed. You Generally, when you encounter boredom, you increase the complexity or you bring in variation. That, this is part of the stuff that I always tell parents as part of nonlinear education is that usually boredom is, is the child telling you either that, okay, I'm really done with this. Stop teaching me numbers uh, and addition. I've learned it for the last three years. Let's just move on. Or is that this isn't appealing to me at all. Or the third is that this is not how I learned. This is too visual. You know how everybody says kids with Down syndrome are visual. My son is not at all visual. I've tried visual math and it never worked for him. He's fully auditory. He doesn't even look at what you've drawn or written or the blackboard. He's, his input is here. So these are the three things that we can be missing. So one is boredom, which is that it's too simple and it's too repetitive. The second one is, oh, is the topic itself is not interesting? Or third, maybe the topic is interesting, but that's not their learning pathway. That's not how they learn. I've seen it the other way in math in a lot of kids where we had to move from auditory to visual because many kids these days, visual learning is, is very common. So we had to move to a very visual form of learning. And then the child expressed interest in math again. For my son with Sid, because I already knew how he was learning, he was just getting more and more. Like I don't know, he would get shifty. He would not be looking. I could just feel the boredom. It wasn't that he wasn't understanding, but it was just that he wasn't like fully present and there wasn't any spark in his eye. There was no interest. I, I had by that time gotten used to seeing the spark. So you need to know what that looks like when your child is interested. I would also caution against using this metric too soon, because if you've just started sharing complex concepts with your child, then it might take a bit for the spark to come because they're not used to being taught anything. They're just their standard responses, maybe to just, oh, there she goes again, teaching the same thing. So it might take some time for the back and forth to get started. But when I, for example, now his new thing is geography. Anytime I ask him, what do you want to learn? It's geography, because that's one of his lessons in school in, in social studies, he's doing geography. You can see how he sits like back is straight. He's, he's like leaning forward. That's his body language. But I can see that, okay, he's here. He has a poetry teacher. His teacher works with a lot of non-speaking autistics in poetry. And that's a one hour session that's really long. Even it gets hard for me to, because I'm standing with the board and I'm thinking, how is he? Sid's focus is not generally one hour because he's having to harness all his energy. It's usually like a 20 minute session is the maximum we can go. But he sits for one hour writing poetry and with math, it would be like 10 minutes. I can see his like body has lost tone. It's, it gets very hard to continue. And that can be the case. You, you look for nonverbal cues and you have to get over the mental block that your child is just not capable of understanding. Once you understand that your child, like any other child has varied interests and we might just have to do trial and error to find what is it that sparks the mind. And if a parent is starting this process, you kind of have to start with wow facts. You can't just do addition and multiplication. That's boring for anybody. That's why I started the, okay, Sid, the language of computers is binary and 
the language we speak in is decimals and this is how you go back and forth and that held him for a while but then he was like okay I'm, even that's too much I, I don't care anymore but similarly when i when i'm teaching science to um, one of a new students no matter what age they are i will start with the landing of curiosity rover on mars or i will start with what are the five ways that we know the big bang is real so I don't start with teaching, um, you know, hydraulic pressure or the periodic table or stuff. That's not that interesting. So when I am starting a journey of science, I have to make sure I can hold my student for some time, especially if they've been in the system, special ed system for a while, because they're not used to being taught anything interesting. So it has to be big and not childish, right? So it has to be like many of my students are in their 20s and they're just out of the system. They've, their parents have just figured out that we were wrong. They were all in there. I recommend starting with big and adventurous and exciting and never dumbing it down, but still keep keep your language simple and your ideas complex is what I say. So you don't have to read out an academic paper. That's nobody likes that. I don't like that. I did a PhD and I could never read academic papers. I just not something that appeals to me. So ideas, big language complex. And even after that, if you find that, okay, they don't care about it. They just don't care. Then you know that that topic is not for them. We'll, we'll switch it. So I've, I've tried teaching chemistry to a few of my students and I've realized, okay, it's not going to happen. It's not something they're interested in. And then I switch. Somehow space science seems to work for everybody. So when I switch to space science, it's like, okay, there you are. We, we keep going like that. So is your nonlinear teaching, is that all science-based? When I tutor kids in person, I teach math and science, usually mostly science. But when I am teaching parents how to implement nonlinear education, that is usually science and math. Because with English um, and um, with, of course, social studies, the linearity isn't that big. You can actually go nonlinear even naturally because most kids are taught poetry. It's relatively easy to be nonlinear in language because you can you can tell a school, teach my child poetry, and they're not going to throw a fit usually. They'll be okay with that. Well, in social studies, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure. I think it would be okay however you went. Uh, because history is can be taught any way you want, right? And there's a lot of interest in history anyways. I mean, kids are naturally interested in it. It's usually taught well. But math and science are where kids get stuck where they're often never offered it simply because you just think, oh, he doesn't get addition. We just should stop here and never touch math again. And comprehension, does your approach support comprehension? Yes. So when I talk about reading comprehension, I think that when we say that a child doesn't have reading comprehension, what we're often saying is that your eyes aren't tracking well. So reading comprehension can be vision or it can be visual convergence. So because vision is a motor skill too. So to be able to converge your two eyes and to hold that convergence and track across an entire line, it's a lot of effort for children that have low tone. They're probably gonna have some low tone in their vision too. Okay, if your child has low tone, why should the eyes only be working perfectly? And you doing this and reading like a thing like this is, is incredibly hard. If you have to do that and understand what they're saying, that doesn't mean you don't have reading comprehension. That just means you have trouble converging your eyes. The reading comprehension, I think, is overused and I think is mostly a myth. So I think reading should be supported with audiobooks and other forms like people reading out to you. And my son, if I had relied on him to read, he would just be reading ABC till now. But he's obviously listening to, uh, going to start to listen to To Kill a Mockingbird right now, but only an audiobook because you've just bypassed a uh, skill completely. And you don't need reading comprehension to listen to an audiobook. So that's what, that's my approach to reading comprehension is that 
again and again, I'm, all I'm saying is don't get stuck. Don't get stuck thinking that you can't go to more complex because then your child's language is never complex because you are limiting it by how much they can read. How will your child develop language if all you're showing is how much they can read, which has got nothing to do with what they can understand. For me, it's only audiobooks because my son is so auditory, but for other kids, it can be books, audiobooks, somebody reading out, maybe even a, seeing a play or a movie or like just different things. Make it easy. Liam responds really well. We noticed when our daughter was born, people were like, you don't watch TV. And with Liam, we said, we were told you, by a really great speech therapist, well, that can really help with language development, you know? And so he responds well. Um, and that was one of the things we actually brought into an IEP because they were taught when, when I say comprehension, they will tell you that your child doesn't understand what they're reading or what's being read in class. And so listening to you, when and this is for IEPs and for supports for your child, you can say, well, let's uh, explore different forms of that. And that is a basic accommodation um, to to know to ask for books on tape and, and to ask to be read different forms of input. And I love that you bring I never thought of that with low tone in the eyes. And how much work. Now, I know my son works really hard on everything, harder than I've ever worked in my life. And just to fathom how hard he had to work and, and that there could be low tone issues when they're reading. Because, you know, when you step into that IEP and they're talking about what your child's ability is, they haven't done the research on, on really what low tone is. Um, they just come in heavy handed and tell you all these things that they don't really know. They don't know. They don't know your child. So when when you're looking at comprehension goals and when you're looking on supporting your child, those are three really fantastic ways. And it's also a point you can make in your IEP of my child has low tone, that doesn't exclude his eyes. And I, I can pretty much venture out that in lieu of doing an assessment, which costs them money, they're going to say, no, we can do books on tape. I, I can, um, I can almost guarantee that they're going to, they're going to be gung ho. And part of this journey is that because it's fiscally motivated, the more that we can come into the situation with answers that will support our child, you make it easy to where they can go. They'll say yes. They'll say they have the library of books on tape. They have all of that. And when, and when we talk about comprehension is usually the expression. Your child doesn't know what just happened in the story. Any thoughts on that, on that particular? That particular area, what happened in the story? I think Knowing and relating, it's a different skill and it's a skill that has to be cultivated. I still don't relate it to cognition and comprehension. So first of all, has the child really been able to follow along with the book? So there is that first basic step. For example, um, I'll just share one example that I think helps clarify why reading comprehension is is a jump that we make. And it may be a faulty assumption is that if I started teaching you, I'm assuming you guys can't read, um, I don't know, let's say Korean. So then if I start teaching you the Korean script for reading and you learned it and I gave you a novel and I said, tell me what it says. Imagine how you'd be reading it. You'd be reading it letter by letter and putting the words together. There's no way you'd know what the first line even said, even if you understood it, because you're still putting things together. And when you have poor tone, it's like it's an analogy. It's not the same, but it's like I used to read and write Hindi fluently and but I just haven't touched it for the last 25 years I've just only been with English and when I read somebody's tweets in Hindi it takes me 10 minutes to read one tweet and I'm like 
Okay, and I, I've written exams in Hindi. So I, I, I speak like I'm not, it's not my native, it's not my mother tongue, but I speak like a native and I read the whole thing and I'm like, what did they just say? And then I hit translate tweet and I read it in English. So <laughs> it's hard, right? So it, it's like that for somebody else. So is it that, let's say we've taken over out that barrier. Now they're listening to it on audio. So that one barrier is not there. Then you're asking them to repeat and they may have an understanding, but how many of us are like, we know so many of us that are poor communicators, like neurotypical adults. You know, you, you've said this perhaps about some of your friends that don't take what he says seriously. It doesn't mean what he says, or you've said that he really can't express himself. He doesn't know how to say what he really means. How many, I'm using he because it's more common in men, I think. But anyway, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I've said this for so many people. I've said this about my husband, my, my relatives, many people. So this is a learned skill to transfer something in your brain to your speech, assuming that you have control. So you can see how many places we are struggling. First, you have to read. You have to translate that into something meaningful into your mind, assuming that because you're already so much trained to just put the words together and read. Let's say that translation has happened. Then in from your mind to the right words, assuming that you're fluent in speech. But if speech also tone issue, now speech itself is imperfect. So not only do you have to transfer it to speech, you have to be uh, intelligible. And so you, you are struggling on like I, I, at least four levels you're struggling. How on earth are you supposed to say what you just read and tell this to another person? How is that even a fair expectation? I will never ask my son, what did you read in the passage? He's sometimes he's able to say, sometimes he just doesn't want to say, it's too much effort. So he doesn't like these kind of questions. So what, what I do is that I, if I notice that the interest is being sustained and he likes to analyze later, so I won't ask questions like this. I find them insulting to ask that, what did you just read? Can you tell me? No. Instead of that, the question is more respectful. So what do you think of the way that the narrator is narrating the story? Do you think, you, do you like that? Or would you prefer a different narrator? Something more, more respectful like that, instead of just saying, explain what you read. Instead of show me. Yeah, instead of show me, engage in a discussion. Which you would do with any person who you respected their intelligence. Well, even the people that you just talked about that you know they're not good communicators. Mm -hmm. You and everyone around them probably pretty open to bridging that gap. And I don't know why we don't do it. We with don't our do kids. it with 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 our kids, you know. So I want to repeat that because I think like I'm learning as far as just I wish I had that. This is a wish you knew then thing because I wish I would have had that. Like to go in. Uh, again, when you're working with those people that are supposed to be a team and discuss the fact that, uh, and I'm going to say they might resist, but this is your hour or however long you have to sit in those IEPs. We had super long IEPs. Um, this is your time. And the real reason that you're in that meeting is to find a way to support your child to accessing the curriculum. That's how it's, that's, that's why it's a, it's a legal binding document. And that's actually what's supposed to happen in that conversation. So have that conversation when they tell you when your child can't read, have your, have your conversation about the different abilities and things that it takes into reading. And how do we support that? Have the conversation about separating that actual act of reading and the input that's happening and what comprehension is. And sometimes I'll, I will do that same thing where I will um, put it in perspective for them. Like, how would you feel if this and that and this? So this is what you're doing to my child. So you can have that conversation about 
how insulting it is to say, what did you just read? Because really the who, what, where questions that they give to every other, you know, child is, oh, well, we will take notes as we go. And a lot of times I'll, because my honest, my comprehension of a story, sometimes I myself have to read it a couple times. I have to go back before it just, it really absorbs. That's how I learn. I have to read it a few times, like watching a movie about it really helps me sometimes watching documentaries. That's how my brain works. I was never held and assumed incompetent. I was allowed to go to higher education. I was allowed to work through finding what worked for me. So I think that's another conversation that can be had when we're talking about supporting our children. And I love these tools that we can bring in and have that intellectual conversation about how we support and what does that mean? And let's quit assuming there's there's an inability and, and begin to assume the intelligence. And it's about we're going to assume it and we're going to support it. And then we're going to see how we can cultivate and, and, and pull it out. And that how empowering that is to our children. Doesn't that just help everyone? Doesn't that help every child and every human? Every human. I've said this before, too, that Sophia, when she was in fifth grade, had a teacher that in front of us looked at Sophia and said, Sophia, I have to tell you, you have a gift for leadership. Just having someone else tell a child that, true or not, I mean, Sophia is a great leader, but... But if you told somebody they were a great leader, couldn't, couldn't you make that, them? Isn't that like part of the absolutely. thing that makes it makes them into? How how many ways were you imprinted on uh, where it just really came from that those those words? Could be negative. Well, I was just gonna say with our kids, it comes it comes from the other direction, and I do think that as parents and educators and loved ones and caregivers, that that we become aware of words that were spoken to us and how they've how they've kind of taken root. These are the conversations we've had recently about just stop listening to the conversations that don't actually come from our community, that don't actually come from the experience. They're old and they have cobwebs on them and they don't make sense and they're not relative. And it is just a tool to put them in a separate classroom and to segregate them out, which is just, we could talk all day about inclusion and the benefits of society. I love the importance of separating because honestly, the first IEP that we went into where we talked about comprehension is they were trying to tell me that my child didn't comprehend stories, but they all knew my child. And they know that Liam loves Star Wars and the Avengers and he loves movies. And so I was able to talk about how, well, Liam was just talking to you about Star Wars. Wasn't he breaking down the order of the films and what happened in each film? And so isn't that comprehension? And then they can't really say your son doesn't comprehend. Yes, he does. Just whatever tool you're using to measure that is inappropriate. I feel sometimes we have to just like step out of, step off the conveyor belt they have us on. Absolutely. Yeah. Most of my moments of clarity have come from something that may even have looked like a negative causing me to stop and just take a moment to actually see what's in in front of us and to actually see, to actually see Liam. Absolutely. Yes. What grade level can we begin nonlinear education? Because nonlinear education is a mindset, you can begin it and you probably should begin it as early as possible. So for example, the last batch of parents I was teaching, one of the parents was asking me, uh, telling me that her child doesn't put the 
correct color in the right puzzle. So he's considered that, I mean, like, oh, he doesn't understand where to put the circle. All that means to me when a child can't put a circle in a circle shape is that fine motor vision. That's all I see. There's nothing else. Okay. You can't see it or you, you can't control. You don't have motor control or motor planning. Okay. That's all I see. This is a much younger child, four-year-old, and his educators and his like his team is waiting for him to master this supposedly very important skill before he's taught anything. My son can't put a circle in a circle now. I mean, he's it's just too much. And he won't because now he he feels insulted to be asked that. He he simply will not put a circle. He, he'll probably throw the puzzle back at you. He's not going to do it. Um, there are actual techniques to nonlinear education, pretty much most, many of which I've talked to about how to avoid thinking of education as a bridge. We're not laying one stone after another. We're thinking about it as a spider web where we're branching out in all directions. And if you see a barrier in front of you, you just branch out around it and you go to other places and you don't have a fixed destination. You go where the neurons go. So you just you just go, you just keep going, that's it. So that that isn't age-related. Specific math and science techniques, of course, I would say that maybe around six years old is a good play, time to start. Uh, six to seven is when you, that's when I started with my son, but that's only because that's when I, I figured things out. It's also when he started using RPM to communicate, but you should be thinking like this, especially if your child is non-speaking, has poor tone, because then they are going to be put in a box by other people and you have to listen to, nobody's going to tell you that your child is smart. I mean, I don't believe there's any child that's not smart. I don't think that, I think this whole smartness thing is overblown, but people will say things, like you said, whether they're true or not, somebody will say something nice. Nobody's going to say that. At most you'll get a, your child is a cute thing. So you are going to have to believe it immensely Unshake, you have to be really unshakable. And for that, you have to surround yourself with people that really believe this idea of intellectual delay is probably untrue. And I, for some reason, this also seems to be a little bit of a controversial thing to say, because I think sometimes people might identify with that diagnosis. But for a child, I'm going to say this, I'm going to maybe change that. For a child, why should you start with the belief of intellectual delay? You have to start believing that the field of all possibilities is true. And you are going to be told over and over again that it's not true. You have to come back again and again. So therefore, it's a mindset thing. So you, you really need to start whenever you can start and hold on regardless of what your child presents as. Because whatever they present as, you can really pare it down to either a sensory issue or a motor issue. There is no third. You have no means of accessing the brain. You have no means of understanding the brain. Um, one of my friends says that it's not her statement, but I have not been able to source it. The brain is plastic and the senses are the only way in. And now what I'm adding is motor is the only way out. So if you have sensory integration issues and if you have motor muscle tone issues, you have no idea what's, what the brain is capable of. So you don't have a window to the brain at all. So we really need to understand that we will never know, even if you put electrodes on the brain, we're not gonna know really because we've seen over and over again that anything is possible. Well, how freeing is the concept of, of the spider web? Oh, I love it. I absolutely love that because how, I mean, that's, that's freeing for, that's how my brain for works. For anybody. You had said about approaching education from something that's actually challenging, but also age appropriate. So you're not going to go, hey, <laughs> here's a ball, right? So because your child is a human and that's insulting, and, you know, just like my daughter can sit and listen to the way people talk to my son, they're going to feel insulted. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, I have never had someone go, well, I said that to Liam and he was insulted 
because that is not something that anybody can comprehend that my child feels. That our children are incapable of feeling insult, right? Yeah. They can be angels. <laughs> they can be the happiest people on earth, but I've never had a resource provider or an educator say, oh, this is, oh, I said this and that. And I'll be like, you're using a lot of words or that's really a funny tone or, and never in their wildest dream would they think that their approach is insulting. They do for Sid because I have set up the expectation now. And this is not people that are new to him, but they are people that have maybe worked with him for, um, like, for example, his OT has worked with him for many years. And she, she also moved from uh, skepticism to she saw his letterboarding skills develop over the years. And now she uses the letterboard with him. Uh, she, she'll say, oh, I asked Sid and I think he was just irritated. I think my question was too dumb, so he didn't answer me. So um, while she's not used the word insult directly, she's meant it through different ways. So she's very open to the idea of Sid being insulted. Yeah, and, and she asked him a question last week. And I think she told me that Sid spelled on the board, you're nuts. And so stuff <laughs> like that. So yeah, so she's open to being insulted and to the idea. That, so it's a, it's a healthy relationship. Let me put it that way. On occasion, yes, there are two or three people that Sid works with that really presume competence. So and at that, because they presume competence, it's the relationship is very friendly. It's 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 not a therapist child relationship. It's a very and he's not a child anyway, he's 14, but uh, he, but still the relationship is, is of equals and the way they, they talk is also a very, very equal tone. And which is the same with me and uh, the non-speaking. So I don't have a student with Down syndrome, but um, I have many students that are autistic and non-speaking um, that would have been traditionally considered low functioning within quotes. And I think that that concept of asking very obvious questions happens all the time where they're like, you won't get an answer. Recently, we had a guest home who was mind blown. I mean, they were, they were just, they just seen Sid and then they saw Sid spell on the letter board. And I think it was the first time they'd seen something like this. So they were very mind blown, very, very nice people. They were, they were just engaging with him for the first time. So they were asking Sid, can you tell me your father's name? And obviously like, I was like, oh my, I didn't know how to approach this. So I, I, I didn't say anything. As I said, let's sit, take care of it. And then he also thought, because it would be rude not to respond. And he's very polite, but he's not going to give you his father's name because that's too insulting. He's not going to just rattle off. This is my dad's name. So I, after a while, he said, in which lifetime do you mean? So he just needed to get a smart ass answer back. So which he did. That's awesome. Yeah, so I've many times come across Sid being insulted because people will ask him questions like a child, which is, you know, which is what we ask a two-year-old. But that's, we're used to that. I'm, I'm, I'm not offended, but, but because their intentions were very good. But it was curious to see that conversation unfold. So he's, 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 I don't have to, unless I'm not there, I don't have to play interference anymore. If I'm there, because I can use the, I can hold the letter board and he can spell for himself. But if I'm not there, then not everybody is trained on the letter board and he doesn't necessarily have a comeback or a way of showing that he is insulted. So then I have to like put preventive measures in place. So everything I'm saying along with this, I also have to put a lot of, I have to say repeatedly that this is how you can talk. This is how you cannot talk. You, when you're talking, like maybe at two ages. So if you think you're talking to a 14 year old, talk as though you would talk to a 16 year old. No baby talk, no, um, as long as that is in place, then usually the conversations are okay. Well, you said equal like three or four times, and that's what was in my mind too, is when people don't think that Liam could 
could be insulted. That's because they don't see an equal transaction there between their communication together and and their work and their working environment too together. When you when you talk about therapist, there's an assumption that Liam wouldn't be offended by something because it's um, he's too. I don't even want to say babyish. It's just the thought process of his mind wouldn't be that developed in their mind, right? And I don't, I don't think we've come across a lot of people that would think that Liam could be insulted by something that they did but i love the comeback that sid said it was uh, pretty fantastic and it's not like we don't we don't want our our children to just be snarky no you know and i know that people have their best intentions but then again it's it's just uprooting those beliefs and i bet they will never you i think quiz that him again it seems like a quiz what's no, your it's father's totally, name it's totally a test it's a test it's yeah. a to- and yeah. our son gets tested all the time i was just even thinking about that just you know the other day you know he's always asked like steven actually on the way to school all the time especially when it's like coming to his birthday he'll say okay how old are you what grade are you in he might just be so sick of that mm-hmm. like or i'll say what the date is you know let's the repeat date? the date Today's in a year the and We're it's like he's this. like i'm kind of done with it man i know you told me it was tuesday like how have we been assuming come because maybe we've still been regurgitating what what we were doing in those initial times where repetition is really one of the approaches that works with Liam. But when does repetition become insulting to our son? I'm actually in fault of preparing him for the questions that people may give him that are kind of tests, like what your friends did with Sid. I'm preparing him so that, oh, can I, can I make sure that you're, you're good? Let's like a pretest. So now we're getting into, he has to now repeat this three, four times. Why? And then what could we do with that energy and time instead with him and for him? What else? We could be teaching him nonlinear science and math. We can let him express himself or have the same ability that our daughter has. And that's just to be who she is in that moment on that day and learn because of the mistakes that she makes or the decisions and the choices, because that's how she becomes the human that we put out into the earth, like or not into the earth. She's on the earth <laughs> as she goes into the world. Like, you know, I'm, I'm having these moments and I share them because I'm learning all the time. And you know, when we're done here, our approach, this, this will be absorbed into our approach. Um, mm-hmm. And we're still learning. And I'm so, I'm always so thankful for Liam because he's so very patient with me. And I thought about what if we started every relationship, um, every relationship really in our lives, but also with our son and with the school system, with a teacher, with a provider of supports, with in that IEP. And what if the first words were, let's assume competence, guys. Let's just assume this. And now where can we go? Yeah. Sometimes parents might get a little worried when I say presume competence because they think they're not seeing it in their child. Just want to remind everyone that assuming intelligence or presuming competence is not assuming genius. That's not what we're doing here. We're just doing the basic courtesy you you should to any other human being to assume that they have the capacity that you have. That's all. We're not assuming that my son is a poetry genius, which he's not. He's just liking it and exploring it. That's it. Similarly, if he were doing math, we're not assuming that they're mad genius and they have to jump five grades. That's not the conversation we're having here. Simply giving them the respect and courtesy that they have the ability given the right tools and given the right support because their learning pathways may be different and their interests may be different. That's simply all we're assuming is that they're capable. And if that has become a stretch that tells a lot about how we are as a society. If, we, if giving that basic courtesy to another human being, it should not be a stretch. 
I so appreciate your openness to finding this and putting it out there because I think as parents, we put this pressure on ourselves and that pressure to be perfect and do it right can inhibit us from finding new ways. It's a self-judgment motivated maybe by the exterior judgment that is put on, I know for me, Liam. And I, I appreciate your fortitude. I appreciate your honesty and your courage. We can also bring these tools in and these ideas and these, and, and that's how we, that's how we change the conversation that we're not just pawns. We're not just there to absorb opinions that we come in with information and we come in with the tools and supports that we, we know that we use in the actual life of our child and that we see a difference being made. And I do believe that there are educators and systems and people who appreciate that and who do want to see things change. I do I do believe that. Definitely, I think there are. There are definitely people that are frustrated with not knowing where to move. So that's absolutely, I, I believe that's the case too. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Have a wonderful afternoon. Yeah. You too. Bye. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Take